Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So my, my mother has had the uh, same dry cleaners uh, in the Philadelphia area for over 30 years. And while every customer that she has is very special, uh, two of her customers were uh, pretty famous. Uh, the first was Charles Barkley. When he was a Philadelphia uh, 76er, uh, he lived in the Philly area, obviously. Uh, but the, the second person who was even more famous than Charles Barkley was this teenage kid that moved to Lower Marion from Italy named Kobe Bryant. Now, my mom knew who Chuck was because there were pictures of him plastered all over billboards throughout Philadelphia. And so she was able to get his autograph on this balding ball. But she didn't know who this kid Kobe was. But as he and his father, Jelly Bean, would come to my mom's cleaners over and over again, she began to hear their story. And when Kobe... Uh, uh, entered into the draft and became a rookie for the Lakers, she was able to get one of his autographs where he's on this poster where he's dunking the ball through his legs uh, to win the, uh, the dunk contest. And, uh, and so she gave me this poster with Kobe's autograph on it. And I know that there's a lot of Southern Californians here, but for me, I've always felt very conflicted when it comes to this poster because I am a huge San Antonio Spurs fan. And as a Spurs fan who were, who were rivals with the Lakers, particularly with Kobe, uh, there was a part of me that, that just hated Kobe because they would always beat the San Antonio Spurs. But even though I hated Kobe, it was hard not to respect his game. But even more than his game, it was hard not to respect his work ethic. There are legendary stories of Kobe taking, for example, his family to Disney World and not wanting to cheat his kids out of family time with them. He would wake up at 4.30 a.m. to work out for two hours. He would come back to the hotel dripping in sweat, having already worked out intensely and then beginning the day with his family. You just hear story after story of this sort of this toughness, this inner fortitude, this kind of grit, this kind of singular focus on wanting to be the best player in the world and winning an NBA championship. And this singular focus, this toughness, this grit, famously became known as a Mamba mentality. And uh, I, I had no idea that the Redeem team was gonna come out on, that doc was gonna come out on Netflix, but it also highlights Kobe's focus on and desire to win. Now, what does that have to do with us today? Well, if you're joining us for the first time today, um, for the past few weeks, we've been doing a collection of sermons on 2 Timothy. 
And this is the reason why it's called Second Timothy is because this is Paul's second letter to Timothy. This is also Paul's last letter uh, before he is days away from his uh, execution and death. And one of the things that he tells Timothy to have is a mamba mentality because in the first century world, there was not only a social cost for following Jesus, but there was also a physical cost for following Jesus. And so last week, we heard about two men in particular, Phygelus and Hermogenes, who not only left Paul, but they also left the faith. And the reason why Phygelus and Hermogenes left Paul and they left the faith was because the cost of following Jesus was greater than the reward of following Jesus. And knowing that, he tells Timothy not to be timid, but to have a mamba mentality when it comes to his faith. This is why in verse 1 it says this, You then, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul could have told Timothy to be anything, to be wise, to be kind, to be gentle, to be humble, all of which are good things. But it's interesting to me here that Paul says of all things that he could have says, he tells Timothy to be strong in the faith when it comes to following Jesus. Now, my, my oldest daughter, uh, Logan, she uh, recently enrolled uh, in one of the Gracie Brothers schools for jujitsu. So on one day of the week, she's doing uh, musical theater because I love the arts and I want her to be passionate about the arts. But on another day of the week, she's actually doing jujitsu. Okay, now why is she doing that? It's because I want her to be tough, right? I, I learned Taekwondo growing up, totally useless in a real fight. <laughs> okay, a roundhouse kick to a thin piece of wood already half broken, useless. Most fights actually end up on the ground where you have to grapple with people. And I want my daughter to learn how to defend herself. And I want her to kick butt if she has to. I want her to learn perseverance. I want her to learn endurance. I want her to have grit. I want her to be strong. And here, Paul is telling Timothy to be strong when it comes to his faith. And there are three pictures that Paul gives to Timothy for what, what, what exactly it looks like to be strong uh, in the faith, what kind of mentality you need to have. And the three images that Paul gives are of a soldier an athlete, and a farmer. Now, I, I recognize that these three images uh, are not necessarily images that deeply resonate with us because we're, most of us are civilians. We don't have a military background. Some of us may have played sports in high school and college, but most of us are not pro athletes. And, and last but not least, we're all urbanites, right? We live in a concrete jungle. Most of us don't have an agrarian background. And so when we hear images like being a soldier, an athlete, a farmer, it doesn't really hit home to us. But I do want you to know that there are a lot of things that we can learn from other vocations, and chances are there's a lot more overlap than you think. So my wife works at LinkedIn, and I didn't know this, but she was telling me that sometimes when people are in sales, uh, some people in sales are referred to as hunters, 
and other people are referred to as farmers. So the hunters are the ones that are trying to sell a product to a new customer. Farmers are, are, are the people that are sort of, um, you know, cultivating the relationships that they already have, right? They're account managing. And so even there in sales and business, they're referred to as farmers and hunters. So there's a lot more overlap than we think. And so what does Paul mean when he says that we need to have the mentality of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer? Well, read with me verse 3 and 4. It says, join with me. Paul is telling this to Timothy, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Now, this is not the first time Paul uses military language. In his first letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy to fight the good fight. In his letter to the Corinthians, he tells them that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. So this is not the first time Paul uses this kind of uh, military language. And here he's telling Timothy to have a mentality of a soldier versus a civilian. And the reason why Paul juxtaposes soldiers and civilians is because soldiers live life one way and civilians live life another way. And the two key differences between a soldier's lifestyle and a civilian's lifestyle is that A, a soldier does not get entangled in civilian affairs, and B, a soldier lives to please their commanding officer. And the reason why soldiers live this way is because soldiers are more hyper-aware than civilians are that they are engaged in a war. So I don't know if you've ever read Sun Tzu's um, The Art of War. One of the rules in Sun Tzu's Art of War is to know thy enemy. And so Sun Tzu says that if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you'll achieve victory. If you know yourself but you don't know your enemy, with every victory, you will also experience defeat. And then Sun Tzu says if you don't know yourself and if you don't know your enemy, uh, you will suffer defeat time after time after time, which is why Sun Tzu says that you have to know your enemy. And similarly, when Paul is telling us that we need to have the mentality of a soldier, we also have to be hyper aware of who our enemy is. And there are three enemies that the Bible talks about over and over and over again, and they are the world, our own flesh, and then the devil. John Tyson, in his book, primal path, he says this, you don't live in a neutral world. You live in a heavily contested space. You are being formed by something into someone. Are you aware of what those forces are and who you are becoming? The world has a vision for you. The world wants you to be greedy, unrestrained, anxious consumer, addicted to dopamine rewards through trivial pursuits. Satan has a vision for you. The enemy wants you to be selfish, fixated on entitlement, victimhood, selfishness, success, sex, pleasure, and power. Jesus has a vision for you. He wants you to be a godly, passionate, and life-giving uh, person. This means you learn to love what he loves, hate what he hates, feel what he feels, see how he sees, want what he wants, respond how he responded, and become like him. 
And so this is why Paul tells Timothy not to become entangled in those civilian kinds of affairs. Now, when you think about the word entangled, I want you to imagine, you know, Christmas is just around the corner. I want you to imagine opening up that box of Christmas lights that's been tucked away in the garage or, or your closet for the past year. And every time you open up that Christmas box with all the lights in it, it's all tangled up. It's all knotted and caught up with one another. And here Paul is saying that we have to be careful uh, being entangled with all of these different forces that are around us. And oftentimes the things that we entangle ourselves with are not necessarily bad things, but they're good things that we have elevated to God-like things, all right? So the low-hanging fruit, obviously, is our careers. Good thing, but we elevate it to a God-like thing. And so it entangles or hinders our relationship with God in one way or another if we're constantly burning the midnight oil. It could be relationships. Relationships can entangle us or hinder our relationship with God, particularly if the friend group that we're around is somewhat toxic, it could be social media, nothing wrong with social media, but if it becomes like a godlike thing where we're constantly on it and addicted to it, it can also hinder our relationship with God. And so anytime we, we make these good things into godlike things, we, become, we lose our focus or our mentality as soldiers and we become more entangled and entrenched in civilian affairs. Now I want to be careful here because anytime uh, this kind of rhetoric is used in the church, it often... Uh, gives us the connotation that a godly life means an ascetic life. And I want to be very careful of that, uh, especially as someone that grew up in a very legalistic, rule-driven uh, background. Uh, we have to be very careful of associating a godly life with an ascetic life. But one of the things that actually freed me from my own legalism was when I heard, I don't, I don't even remember who said this, but uh, someone once said that... Um, a failure to enjoy this world, a failure to enjoy creation, is actually a failure to enjoy God, the creator of all things. And so as Christians, we above all people, we are called to enjoy this world. We are called to enjoy creation. If someone were to give you a gift and you didn't enjoy that gift, you would be underappreciating the giver of those gifts. And similarly, we are called to love this world Enjoy this world. Enjoy all of creation. I love what Charles Spurgeon says when he wrote this. I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. When I found intense pain relieved, a weary brain soothed and calm, refreshing sleep obtained by a cigar, I have felt grateful for God and to God and have blessed his name. We are called to enjoy this world and to enjoy the creator of it. But my hunch, my suspicion is that for most of us, we enjoy the creation far more than we enjoy the creator. We enjoy the gifts of God more than the giver of those gifts. And so one of the things that we have to recognize is that any substitute for God, any good thing that we have elevated to become a God thing, will ultimately leave us unfulfilled and unsatisfied. The uh, scientist and theologian at Oxford, Alistair McGrath, in his book, Intellectuals Don't Need God and Other Modern Myths, McGrath writes, have you ever noticed what happens when you want something very badly and then you get it? 
a new job, a marriage partner, an important qualification, a pay raise. You begin by longing for it. When I get this, I shall be satisfied and ask for nothing more. But it doesn't work out like that at all. When you finally get your heart's desire, it doesn't seem to satisfy. You want more. You want something else. It seems that nothing finite can satisfy some deep sense of longing within us. But where does that sense of longing come from? And is there any way in which this bittersweet yearning could be satisfied? This is why Plato often referred to our hearts as leaky jars. Every time we try to fill up our hearts with career, sex, money, pleasure, every time we try to fill up these leaky jars, we still feel unsatisfied and unfulfilled. So is there anything in this world that can actually help our cups to overflow? And for us, we believe that that is God. He is the only thing that can quench our, our thirst and satisfy us in the ways that we need, which is why to have a soldier's mentality, we live ultimately to please him. I want to read you something uh, that soldiers have to uh, swear an oath to when they enlist in the U.S. Armed Forces. Every soldier has to say this oath, I so-and-so do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to, regu to regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So help me God. A soldier's mentality is not only not to get entangled in civilian affairs, but they live to please their commanding officers. And similarly, every one of us, whether you're a soldier or not, whether you're religious or not, all of us exist to serve or please something. Okay, it could be our country or our government. It could be your company or your boss. It could be a particular kind of movement that you're very passionate about, but all of us exist to serve somebody. Whether you know it or not, we are all serving something or someone. Now, chances are you're serving that thing or someone because it's serving you back. And you feel like the relationship is reciprocal, but if you push it hard enough, how far will that thing serve you back? At what cost will that thing serve you back. Your company or your boss will not die for you. Your movement, if the cost is too high, they will not die for you. Our country, even as great as it is, if the cost is too high, it will give us up. At the end of the day, if you push it far enough. But the reason why we serve Jesus, ultimately, is because he was willing to even give up his life for us. And when someone is that loyal and that committed and has that much allegiance to you, how can we not have that kind of allegiance and loyalty uh, back to him as well? This is what it means to have a soldier's mindset, a mamba mentality. But here he also gives a second example, and that is of an athlete. And in verse 5, he says this, similarly... Anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Uh, 
Now, as, as modern people, I know that whenever we hear the word rules, we just don't like it. Um, it has far more of a pejorative sense than a, a positive sense to it. And part of the reason for our, our dislike for the word rules is because all of us have been a part of bad rules. All of us have experienced unfair policies, right? So whether it's at home, at school, or with our company, when you experience bad rules or bad policies, those things are not there for your thriving, okay? And so because of that, we don't, we don't like rules, generally speaking. I think the prophetess Elsa captures our modern sentiment really well when she says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I am free. And so the modern definition of freedom then is the absence of rules, the absence of constraints, the absence of limitations, the absence of boundaries, and only then will you truly be free. But from a biblical perspective, true freedom is not the absence of rules or the absence of boundaries, but from a biblical defini definition of freedom, it's not the absence of those things, but it's actually the presence of the right rules, the right boundaries, the right limitations that will ultimately lead to our thriving. So I want to give you an example of this. I want you to imagine for a moment that little Nemo is watching the little mermaid. And he gets to the part where Ariel is singing, I want to be where the people are. And Nemo is thinking, oh, that's the longing that I have in my heart too. Like, I don't want to be constrained in this tiny fishbowl. I don't want to be limited. I don't want these boundaries. I want to be where the people are. And so one day Nemo says, I want to be free. And so he rams into the fishbowl and it starts wobbling. He rams into the fishbowl and starts wobbling even more. And then he rams into the fishbowl and finally the fishbowl falls over and Nemo is free. Except for the fact that now he is slowly dying. True freedom is not the absence of rules, limitations, or boundaries. True freedom that will lead to your thriving and flourishing as human beings is the presence of the right rules, boundaries, limitations. So the question now is, what are those right rules? And for us, we believe it is the Word of God. The Word of God is a lamp onto our feet. It's a light onto our path. You ever see kids go bowling? They always have bumpers in the gutters. The reason for those bumpers is so that the ball does not go astray to the right or to the left, but it remains centered. And in many ways, the Word of God is like our bumper. It's a, it's, it's a light onto our feet, a lamp onto our path. It prevents us from going to the left or to the right. Now, the bad rules from bad rulers who don't love us is a bad experience. But good rules from a good ruler who loves us and wants us to flourish, that is actually what will ultimately lead to our freedom and our thriving. And when you experience good rules from a good ruler, you don't look at rules anymore as an encumbrance on your life. You don't look at rules or laws anymore as like a straitjacket where you feel like you can't do anything. 
you actually begin to see those things as very life-giving, and now you want to obey those things. Okay, so I'll give an example of this. Uh, John Stott, uh, I think, don't quote me on this, I think in his book, The Contemporary Christian, uh, Stott talks about this uh, interview with a French novelist, uh, the secular intellectual uh, named France, Francois Sagan. Okay, and Sagan has written like tons and tons of books, very accomplished, very, you know, has a lot of accolades. And in one of these, uh, in one of these interviews with Francois Sagan, uh, the interviewer asked Sagan, um, what was your great goal in life? What is it that you wanted to achieve? And she said, to be free. And so the interviewer asked her, so have you achieved that? And she said, yes and no. The problem with love is that when you're in love with someone, you can't be free. And then she said, but thankfully, you're not in love all the time. You see, when you're in love with someone, <laughs> you do lose a little bit of freedom, right? I would love to play basketball on Sundays with a lot of you on, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m., but I am restrained by my family. You know, I have to be present with my kids. I can't just do whatever I want to do when you're in a relationship with someone you love because there's accountability, and so Sagan is right in saying that when you're in love, you're not totally, totally free, but you're okay with that. And similarly, when it comes to our relationship with God, if we love him and he really loves us, there is a sense in, from the modern definition of freedom, you're not really free. But in many ways, we gladly restrict our lives we gladly stay in the fishbowl because we know that ultimately following his rules, his way, will ultimately lead to our thriving. As uh, some of the teachers in my daughter's school often say, what does it look like to obey? It is obeying right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. And the more you do that, you realize that it is ultimately for uh, our liberation and our freedom. This is also the reason why Jesus does not say, my will be done, but he says, your will be done. So what does it look like to have a mamba mentality as an athlete? It is when every day you wake up and you say, God, there are some things that I want to do, but not my will. Your will be done. The last analogy that Paul gives is that of a farmer, and in verse 6, Paul says the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, an inactive farmer is an oxymoron. You will never meet a lazy farmer. Every farmer is hard-working because their livelihood depends upon it. Similarly, you will never meet an inactive bodybuilder. Every bodybuilder is active. And similarly, Paul is saying that as followers of Jesus, we have to be hard-working when it comes to our faith. If you want to see physical gains, you have to work hard and be disciplined about what you eat and how you exercise. And similarly, if you want to see spiritual gains, you have to work hard at it. Now, on the one hand, we are not saved by our works. But on the other hand, we do have to work out our salvation uh, with fear and trembling. I like what James Clear says in his very seminal book, The Atomic Habits, when he says that every action that you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Let me say that again. 
Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. So a lazy person who does nothing, they are casting a vote to become a slothful person. A humble person who actively listens to other people, who seeks out wisdom and counsel, is casting a vote to become a wiser and wiser person. A person who is addicted to their phones, that's their actions, they are casting a vote to become a dopamine addict. And similarly, as Christians, every action that you take, you are casting a vote for whether you want to be stronger in the faith or weaker in the faith. And so what Paul is saying here is that if you want to have strength when it comes to your faith, you have to work hard for it. You have to do the hard work of opening up the Bible and reading a chapter a day. You have to do the hard work of actually spending time with prayer with God, even though you might feel like it's a waste of time. You have to do the hard work of getting up on a Sunday morning and trying not just to be present, but actually present so that you can grow stronger in your faith. You have to do the hard work of listening to what other people have to say. You have to do the hard work of being introspective and asking questions, not just, not just questions like, how do I experience others? But you have to ask hard questions like, how do other people experience me? You have to do the hard work of introspection and all these other things if you want to be strong in your faith. No one becomes strong in their faith by accident. We have to work for it. A few months ago, my, me and Jean's former roommate um, came and he was sharing and, and um, a little bit about his background. Our, our former roommate at one point was a pro poker player and he's a, a C-level exec that is foregoing a seven-figure uh, seven salary uh, to go overseas for missions. And by the way, I am not saying that that is what we have to do. We need Christians in all spaces. But one of the things that he said that really struck a chord with me, and he said it in passing, was this. He said, I don't need an easy life, but I want a good one. And that captures the mentality of a farmer. They don't need an easy life, but they want a good one. What does it look like to have a mamba mentality when it comes to our faith? It's a person that says, I don't need an easy life, but ultimately I want to have a good one. Now, if the sermon were to end here, and I would, you know, sent us off and said, now go and have that mentality. At least for me, I think there would be a part of me that says, but I'm not Kobe Bryant. Yeah, I don't, I don't have that kind of inner fortitude and willpower. He did because he's, you know, He's an alien, but for me, I'm just like a regular common person. I don't have that kind, of, that kind of inner strength to wake up at 4.30 in the morning and work out for two hours. And so what am I supposed to do? Well, if you take a look at verse 1 one more time, look at the source of our strength. When Paul tells Timothy, you then, my son, be strong in yourself, in your own willpower, in your own mentality? No, he says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what is grace? Okay. Jesus Christ was the ultimate soldier who gave up his life 
to rescue us. And the reason why he did that is because he wanted to please his commanding officer, God the Father. He never got entangled in civilian affairs, even though the devil tried to tempt him many times in the wilderness by giving him everything. But he was single-minded and focused on you. And because of that, we are saved from our sins. Jesus Christ was the ultimate athlete who followed all the rules. And even though we break all the rules, Jesus followed and obeyed all the rules so as not to disqualify himself as a perfect human substitute for us, dying for our sins. Jesus Christ was the ultimate farmer who never took a day off, but who worked even to the point of death because we were the harvest. We were the crown. We were the trophy. We were all those things. And his mentality was always focused on you. And so what Paul says in verse 7 is to reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into this. And so if we want to have this kind of mentality, we need to continually reflect on who Jesus Christ was as the ultimate soldier athlete, and farmer, because grace is not something that you just need once for your salvation. Grace is something that you need every single day. And thankfully, his mercies are new every single morning. So let me just close with my own three pictures for us. Okay, Paul gives three pictures of a soldier, an athlete, a farmer. Let me also give three pictures that are present not only in our church, but in every church throughout our city, country, and world. First picture is, are those who have a strong faith. The second picture are those who have no faith. And I'm so glad that there are so, so many of you that are here that are open-minded about what Christianity is all about and who the person of Jesus Christ is. But those with strong faith and no faith still tend to be the minority. The largest demographic of, in usually every single church are those who have faith but aren't confident enough to say that they have a strong faith. More likely than not, they, they will admit, we will admit that we have a weak faith. Okay, so we'll, we, we'll identify ourselves as Christians, we'll come to church, you know, you know, check off the boxes, but at the end of the day, we don't have this kind of mentality. And so can I encourage you with, with two questions that are basically asking the same thing. And you know what encourage means? To encourage someone means to put courage into someone. Can I encourage you by asking two questions that are basically asking the same thing? Okay, so the first question is this, and I'm hoping that this will flip the switch for you. Here's the first question. Does God ultimately exist for you or do you ultimately exist for God? Now, God does exist for us. Without him, we would not be here. But does God ultimately exist for you, or do you ultimately exist for him? If you ex exist for him, what kind of mentality are you approaching this relationship with? So that's one question. Here's the other side of the coin that I want to ask another way. Uh, and I, I learned this from um, a few actors that were, were at our church, but uh, in the acting world, uh, there are ones, twos, threes, fours, and fives. The, the one is the main actor. The twos, threes, fours, and fives are like the supporting actors. So let me ask uh, the second question this way. 
Is God ultimately a part of your story, or are you ultimately a part of his story? Are you the number one person in your story where you are the ultimate hero, or is God the number one, and we are the supporting actors instead of God being the supporting actor and foil in our story? Which is it? One day we will die, and the story of humanity will continue. In fact, it has been going on long before us. So is God ultimately, is his job to be a part of your story, or is our job ultimately to also be a part of his story? Paul is literally writing this letter in a dungeon, underground, days away from his execution and beheading. And the reason why he has this mamba mentality is because he knows that God does not just exist for him, but he exists for God. That God is not just a part of his story, but ultimately he is a part of God's story. Do you want to just exist or do you really want to live? If you want to live, here are three images to duplicate. The mentality of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Instead of a civilian, someone on the bench, and a consumer. But which mentality will you have? Let's pray together. Lord, with the brief life that you have given to us, help us to have the right mentality. Thank you for these three vivid pictures of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. But most of all, thank you for being the ultimate soldier, the ultimate athlete, the ultimate farmer who pursued us and laid down your life, single-minded and focused for our rescue and our salvation. God, we thank you and help us to respond with allegiance and devotion back to you. In your name I pray, amen.